Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to begin our study of the book of Revelation. After we get done with this, you can say you have uh, been through Genesis and Revelation, so you've covered the whole scriptures, right? Uh, Y'all are looking pretty good out there today. You uh, cleaned up pretty nicely. Nice clothes on. I want you to uh, think of yourself as a ragged army. Think of yourselves as war-torn and beaten down and scars and hungry and tired. Um, that's actually the... the uh, a better picture of who you are. You are, um, I know enough as a pastor that uh, all things are not well on the inside, even if they look okay on the outside. You can put on a nice set of clothes and comb your hair nice easier on the uh, Sunday morning than you can actually uh, truly uh, do better on the inside. The day is October 25th. The year is 1415. The place is Agincourt, France. King Henry V of England is waging a war against France. The war has been going on for some time. The English army is outnumbered two to one. They are far from home. They are weary. And tired. And they are wishing that there were more of their countrymen with them in the coming battle. King Henry, according to Shakespeare, rises to speak to his troops to instill courage in their hearts. And what we have is the saint. Crispin's Day speech, of which I will read just a portion. He which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand tiptoe when this day is named. Stand on your tiptoes. And rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeves and show his scars and say, these wounds I won on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall not be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth, as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered, 
This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England shall now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Well, what does this speech have to do with the book of Revelation? I would argue that they are both given to war-weary soldiers in need of hope and courage to continue in the fight. The Christian church is engaged in a great war. It is a war against evil. It is a war to build the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is not a mock war in which there are no casualties. Men and women and even children are strewn across the battlefield of history. In this war, we must fight to win. We must accept that we will either conquer the foe or the foe will conquer us. Our foe is so terrible, so ruthless, so foul that surrender is suicidal. Our enemy does not follow the conventional rules of war. He will use any and every strategy available to him with no remorse for his hatred and cruelty. And there are no clear lines separating us from the enemy. He attacks us even in the depths of our own souls. Now some of us dream of playing some vital role in some glorious battle. But most of us who have been fighting the enemy for any length of time, we simply want rest. We want the fighting to be over. We want the the enemy to finally be defeated. Instead of rest... We are called to again form rank and march towards the enemy. We are called to hold our ground to the last. We are called to be brave even as we watch those around us being slaughtered. This is the reality for which the book of Revelation is given. Soldiers are beaten down and war-weary and discouraged. Soldiers in this fight are wondering, I did not think it would last this long. Soldiers like us are thinking, the cost is higher than I expected. Soldiers who are now thinking the enemy is far more formidable than I first thought. 
The book of Revelation is the message of our King to us as weary soldiers. We are told the truth in Revelation. We are told the truth about our Commander-in-Chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told the truth about our enemy, the one who is far more evil than we could ever imagine. And we're told the truth about ourselves as a church. In fact, that's going to be one of the major lessons today. We who are the church, the army of the Lord, the bride of Christ. And we're given some explanation of what lies ahead. Mainly more suffering. We are told that in the end we win. A glorious victory. You see, Jesus is not interested in answering your curiosities as you sit in nice, warm pews. He wants to encourage you to fight in this struggle that is a knockdown, life and death battle. You may or may not have been inspired by the St. Crispian's Day speech, but I'm telling you, You must be inspired by the book of Revelation. This is God's word to you to help you in your fight. The book begins, Revelation 1, 1a. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things That must soon take place. The book of Revelation is Revelation. And it's Revelation given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Revelation here is apocalypse. And it means uncovering, unveiling. Picture a curtain covering something and you pull back the curtain and show something that's happening or the truth about someone God the Father has given to Jesus Christ the right to uncover to His soldiers things that must soon take place. Now Jesus is not giving a speech to His soldiers saying, oh, of things that will take place in yonder years. He's telling them that which will take place tomorrow when they walk into the battle. And the same thing I would say of you two, you guys today, It is the message of Revelation is to be relevant for you when you walk out of this room. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that he saw. In this we see that Jesus is the source of the revelation, but Jesus also makes use of an angel. The only reason I bring this up is because we'll be seeing a lot of angels in Revelation. The basic meaning of of angel is messenger. Messenger. Since John is the only one who actually received the message, he wants to make sure to his hearers that this book is not full of his own ideas. It is coming to him from the Lord Jesus, and it is true Word of God. John also tells us that he has written what he has seen, what he saw. 
And in Revelation, we get kind of confused in our day because we, we see all these images and we're like very unfamiliar with them. They're not images that we're used to hearing or seeing. And the reality is, is that they were much more um, uh, understandable to the original audience than to us. Actually, Revelation is full of Old Testament allusions. And I think one of the reasons why John loves to go back even to use Old Testament language to describe the things that he's seen is because he wants the soldiers that he's talking to right now, the army that he's dealing with, he wants to let them know that this, they are engaged in a war that began long before they were here. It has been a war that started with the fall in the garden and has gone all the way through to the end in Revelation. Revelation 1.3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John is not giving us a statement about a magic spell. Just, just read them aloud, and somehow blessing will drop on people. John is giving the promise of blessing that it's placed upon all of God's Word. Listen intently to God's Word and seek to obey it in faith, and that is the path of blessing. John also expects that this book will be read in public. When he first wrote it, he had a copy, maybe a few copies, and he sent it to the churches And not every individual would have their own Bible to read on their own. And so he expected it to be read and preached about in church like we're doing here today. I think it's interesting. I've been 20, well, I don't know how long, a long time in the ministry. It's the first time I've ever tried to preach through Revelation. So, Also, we should see here that Revelation is not something, again, to... Answer your curiosities. Revelation is given so that you can uh, put your uh, faith into action. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Now John is writing to seven known churches in what is now Turkey. I'll talk about why he chooses these seven later. We get into the chapters 2 and 3. But for now, you just need to know that there were more than seven churches in this region. <laughs> in fact, just for, to make the point, the, the church of Colossae is right in this region, and he leaves them out for some reason. <laughs> John then greets the churches in a typical greeting and says, Grace to you and peace. Even though the book of Revelation is a call to the soldiers to action, John still begins, like all the letters of the New Testament, with this statement that you must receive from God grace and peace. You see, Revelation is not something separated from the rest of the the Bible. It is simply this grace and peace coming to you from God Himself. That's what you need if you're going to endure in this fight. You need God to encourage you 
You need God to feed you. You need God to strengthen you. Augustine is said to have said, Lord, command what you will, give what you command. You need strength from God. You will not stay strong in the fight apart from the grace of God coming to you. Now, what's interesting in this grace and grace to you in peace, it's a typical Pauline greeting, even though this is John, but in all the Pauline letters you hear something like this, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a typical uh, greeting in the Pauline letters. John does something very similar, but listen to what he does. Grace to you in peace, listen to the froms here. From him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Do you hear the three froms? What John is doing here is he's basically saying grace and peace comes to you from the Trinity. Now, he switches the order a little bit. And he puts the Father first, the Spirit second, and the Son third. Let me talk a little bit about this. I think it was very purposeful. First, the Father. Grace to you and peace from Him who what is and who was and who is to come. Now, I don't know about you, but the first when I hear that words, and as soon as I hear who is to come, I think of Jesus. But John is clearly put in this order, the Father, using words that make you think of Jesus. Now why would he do that? Because he wants you to understand that when Jesus returns, it is God returning. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And so he doesn't mind using words of Christ, the Son, that would also apply to the Father. The eternality of the Father, the almightiness of the Father, also belongs to the Son. Second from is the reference to the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, Himself fully God in essence. But He doesn't say from the Holy Spirit, does He? From the seven spirits? That's confusing. Seven spirits? This is the only place in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is referred to as the seven spirits. And our natural inclination is to think, hmm, how can this be the Holy Spirit if it's seven spirits? But these, these froms, it's clearly the Holy Spirit because He wedges it right between the Father and the Son, speaking of the Trinity. Only God can give grace and peace. So it's clearly talking about the Holy Spirit here. Why would John want to identify the Holy Spirit with seven spirits? Well, John wants to associate you as his church with the Holy Spirit. He will describe the entirety of the church as sevenfold why he addresses seven churches that's why there we'll see later in a minute seven stars and seven uh golden lampstands he wants to describe the complete and full church 
and he uses it as seven. And because the Holy Spirit is in every nook and cranny of the entirety of God's church, he is the sevenfold spirit. Not only this, but what is the job of the Holy Spirit? What does he do? He brings the church before the throne of God. Think about that. He doesn't want you to think of of the church as something separate from God. He wants you to think of yourself, which is a big part of the revelation. Who are we as the church? He wants to think of you as continually being lifted up by the Spirit into the very throne room of God. So while you are down here in this war-beaten world and struggling with evil and sins, you are to be thinking, I am continually being lifted up into the throne room of God every day. Hebrews tells us that we have access to the throne room of God because of the blood of Christ. But in Revelation, you know that the Holy Spirit is lifting you up there into His throne. So in a sense, we think that Jesus has come down here with us, but in a sense, we're lifted up into the very throne room of God as we worship Him even today. The members of the church of Asia Minor were ridiculed. They were persecuted. They were not respected. They were not well thought of. But from God's perspective, the church is continually being brought before Him by the Holy Spirit. In just a few moments, you will leave this this building, you will go out into a world, and they will speak harshly of you. They will talk about you as if the church is irrelevant or, or someone to be hated. They will make it so that you think that it is shameful to be a part of a church. They will point out to you the faults of the church. They will tell you that it is foolish to remain a member of God's church. They will say that the church is full of hypocrites. And they will tell you that you are better off just getting that away from the church. And it is in those moments that you need to remember that it is the church that is indwelt by the Lord Jesus Christ and lifted up to His throne every day. Last if not least... Grace to you and peace comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. There are many descriptions that you could have, uh, John could have given to the Lord Jesus Christ. The one I would not have chosen is a faithful witness. But then again, John's smarter than I am. Why do you need to know that he is a faithful witness? Well, you need to know this because you need to be able to trust the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus told you that he would never leave you nor forsake you. Is that true or not? Can you trust it or not? He has told you that in the same way that he ascended to the clouds, he will return to the earth. Can you trust him? You see... Revelation is given some 50 or 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they kept looking. 
And they kept looking. And they kept looking. And he hadn't returned. Now, 2,000 years later, are we still looking? Is he still faithful? Can we really trust him? Are his promises to us valid? He promises to you a kingdom. He promises that He's preparing a home for you. He promises that you will have tribulation in the world, but He has overcome the world. He promises that even though you may die a terrible, suffering, persecuting death, you will win. Can you trust Him? In this context, you now begin to understand how important it is that He is a faithful witness. Next, he says that he is the firstborn from among the dead. In this, he's telling you, do not place your hopes just in this life. Thank you, Benji, for saying that we, in the confession of sin, because I constantly am struggling to place my hopes in this world. He says, I'm the firstborn among the dead. That means you are with me among the resurrection. You are going to place your hopes in the resurrection from the dead because that's where I am, and you are joined with me. Do not fear death. Do not fear the one that can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. You see, in Agincourt, Henry was trying to motivate his forces to slaughter the enemy. Jesus has a far more difficult job. He's trying to motivate you to be willing to be slaughtered. But maintain your faith. Lastly, John says that Jesus is the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. John is sitting on the island of Patmos because Roman authorities have said, you are a danger and we're going to put you out here as a prisoner. Looked like those authorities had control over John. John says, no, 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 no. There is one who rules over the kings of this earth. Whether you like your rulers or not, it makes no difference. Jesus rules them. John is reflecting upon this, and it's no wonder that he bursts into a doxology to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Think he's just trying to satisfy your curiosities? Because he wants you to bow before him. I love the fact that he says he loves us. Even when Jesus allows you to suffer in this life, even when it is at the hands of evil men, you are to remember he loves you and shed his blood for you. Jesus has freed us from our sins. This is what it's all about. Being free from the guilt and the the, uh, power of sin. That's what life is about. That's what he wants them to cling to and not let go of. So even though evil men might take you and put you in prison, you are free. Free in Christ from your sins. And Jesus made us a kingdom. He doesn't give us a kingdom. He made us a kingdom. We are a part of His kingdom. 
the one that will last. You may not have a place in the kingdoms of this world, but these kingdoms are dying. You have a place in the eternal kingdom. And you're not just in the corner kind of sweeping the floors. You are a priest before the God of the universe. You have value. You have significance. I don't care what has happened to you in this world. You are valued by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, John, I think, has lifted us up. He's kind of since put us on the top of the mountain. And then in verse 7, he goes even a step farther. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Listen, don't ever think that you have missed the coming of Christ. When He comes, everyone will see Him. Also, When He comes, even those who have pierced Him will see Him. That is not just talking about the people who were there 2,000 years ago at the cross. It is talking about us with our sins, but it is multi-generational. Even those who are now dead will see Him return. How will that be? Well, there will be a general resurrection that will occur. When Jesus returns, all men will see Him. This is our Christian hope. My hope is not some secret rapture. My hope is in the final resurrection and judgment of all men. Those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ will enter into eternal life, but those who have not believed will be judged in eternal torment. This is why the nations wail at His coming. You see, the nations are this, this, the kingdoms of this world. And when Jesus comes, what does that do? It marks the end of their reign. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. When Jesus comes, it is God the Almighty coming. You're up at the mountain. You're excited. You're saying, yes, yes, Lord Jesus. And then you get to verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What does, Jesus do? What does John do here? He says, look, all that's good, but I want you to understand you are my partners in suffering. Partner in tribulation. Yes, partner in the kingdom, but it is a partner in suffering right now. John wants them to understand, I'm suffering. You're probably going to suffer. We are partners in suffering. Now all that nice glory stuff doesn't sound so good right now, does it? Because we want Jesus to reign in such a way that we don't suffer. I do. I don't know the degree that he'll call Brad to suffer as opposed to me. I don't, that doesn't matter. 
the extent, the degree, every member of Christ's church is called to suffer. We are partners in suffering. And if it's I'm suffering, you should be suffering with me. And if you're suffering, I should be suffering with you because we're partners in this. And the only expectation of relief, lasting relief from the suffering, is when Jesus returns. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. John lists these churches in clockwise manner, but it's not the location of the churches that matters. What is important And the reason why I'm going through the whole chapter and not stopping where we did is because this vision is designed to help you understand who you are. Real churches. We could be reading Revelation as if John said, to the church in Morganton and Marion and Lenore and Valdez and Old Fort and Rutherford College. Real members who are struggling with real life situations. He says then in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death. And Hades. I've studied this passage many times, and I will tell you that most of the time my attention goes to all the different features of Jesus Christ and thinking about how glorious he is. And I don't, this time as I read this, my eyes just were like, oh my goodness, I missed maybe the most important aspect of this whole thing. It's not just who Jesus is, that should be awesome to you, but it is where he is that is the most important thing in this passage. The one who is both priest and king. The one who is the wisest of the wise. The one who sees all things and has been tested and found true. Who speaks and worlds come into being. This Jesus is standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Again, the seven golden lampstands are the church. The same church that is represented by you. The fact that they are golden points to their value. And the fact that they are holy in the presence of the Lord. And the fact that Jesus is in their midst symbolizes His care for them and His sovereignty over them. Of course, John falls down as dead. Like, 
Why is this important? Because your enemies every day are telling you to bow before them. If your God is not big enough to demand your falling before Him, you're in trouble. Your God is bigger than your enemies. But what even is more glorious? You're bowed down, you're falling on your face. It's almost like an involuntary thing. You just boom, down on your face. What does he do? He takes his hand and he puts it on John's shoulder. And he whispers, I don't know if it's a whisper, it could be a lot louder. Fear not. The one who is so powerful and so pure that you think you are going to die in his presence touches you. Touches you. Brothers and sisters, I do not expect to ever be touched by the physical hand of Christ in this life. That awaits glory. I think it will happen up in glory. But I'm telling you, God wants you to feel by faith the hand of Jesus Christ on your shoulder. And He wants you to hear His voice saying, fear not. Whatever it is that you're facing in this world, He's bigger than that. He continues, I am the first and the last. That means I control the beginning and the end. I am the living one. I'm not some dead idol. I am alive. I died. You're going to have to die. I went there before you. And behold, I'm alive. And you too will be alive. Not just for a little time, forevermore. I hold the keys of death and Hades. There are other people that can kill your soul, I mean your body, but they cannot kill the soul because I hold those keys. They are mine. Can you see how he's trying to talk to his army and tell them, do not be afraid. Go into the battle tomorrow. Verses 19 and 20, write therefore these thing, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Verse 19, I think, tells us that we need to know about things that are present and things that will come. If you're in the Hebrew mindset, they divided history between this world and the world to come. John is basically telling them, I'm telling you all kinds of stuff. I'm going to unveil things about your life here and now that you could not even imagine. You're going to see lots of stuff get unveiled in the coming weeks. But I'm also going to tell you about the end, the future. That's what I'm here to tell you about. And in verse 20, he talks of a mystery. And I, I've struggled with this mystery. I thought maybe he was just talking about the metaphor. Like the metaphor that there's seven churches and those are the seven lampstands. And that's, that's mysterious. We didn't understand that. Like a, 
something that we just didn't get. But if you understand that all of Revelation is full of all kinds of metaphors, I think that mystery means more. And that's what really drove this whole message. That's why I'm ending with the end of this chapter. And that is, I think that the mystery is even though right now every bit of your life feels like it is unraveling out of control and the forces of evil are winning, you are right in the palm of Jesus' hand. He is the one holding you. I know the tune to that first hymn today was not easy to, to sing. Go back and read the words to that hymn. You are held in the palm of Jesus' hand. That is the mystery. If you want to fight off discouragement, if you want to beat back the temptation to walk away from Christ, if you want to be strengthened to continue fighting in a war against your own flesh, if you want to overcome the fears that flood relentlessly against your soul, you must believe that mystery. The Lord Jesus has you in His hand. And He is walking in the midst of us. And He is the Spirit is taking us into the very throne room of God on a regular basis. That's what will keep you fighting. Amen.